half an hour later than we would normally have this segment, but still of great interest to our audience. So we're doing Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers as we begin the third hour on this Wednesday. Thank you so much for shifting your schedule slightly for us, Michael Mulligan, so we can accommodate our debate analysis. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Always a pleasure to be here. Interesting stories on the docket this week, including a question of how one may wind up at a minimum security institution if one has been classified as being more suited to medium security. Indeed. Um, and this uh, is in the context of that, uh, of course, uh, escape from William Head with those two people that went missing. And this week, one of the two showed up in court and pled guilty to escaping. Probably not much of a tribal issue. You appear to not be where you're supposed to be. Here you are. Um, and uh, so the Crown asked for, interestingly, uh, the maximum sentence, I think, in the given how they had proceeded. They were seeking a 24-month sentence. And that was in the context of uh, this fellow having a record of five previous escapes, which caused the judge, not surprisingly, to ask a few questions about, well, how is it that with five previous escapes, he was at a minimum security prison? Uh, it came out in the course of that that he was indeed classified to be in a medium security rather than a minimum security prison, which then prompted the judge to say, well, please find out a little bit more about what happened here, who failed who, and why was he there? Now, that prompted me to have a look at how it is that he might have wound up at a medium, a minimum security prison, William Head, if that's not where what he was classified to be in. And lo and behold... Uh, there was a study uh, produced uh, for uh, Corrections uh, Services Canada looking at exactly that issue. Uh, this study was conducted in 2001, uh, and it was a study, it's entitled Federal Offender Population Movement, a study of minimum security placements. And it looked at the issue of how might that happen. Uh, and uh, there are some insights there. First of all, one of the things that the study points out uh, is that one of the things we've talked about here before is that the correction services will do a classification for somebody to figure out what their security risk is. They'll look at things like a person's previous criminal record, what they're serving time for, a whole host of factors, and that will dictate where they are to be initially classified, and then that classification could change depending on things like programs they've completed, reports on how they've done, well, they've been in for a number of years, this sort of thing. Uh, but there are a significant number of individuals uh, who are uh, where that classification decision is overridden, uh, and there's authority to override it and to move somebody either to a higher or lower security institution than their uh, risk assessment would seem to dictate. And there are, the study points out, a variety of reasons why that might occur. And they looked at a period of time, but uh, an 18-month period of time between April 1st, 1999 and September 30th, 2000. And they took a selection of people who were put in institutions other than the ones of a security classification that would seem to be dictated given their background. And there are a number of reasons why that might occur, some of which seem perfectly legitimate. There are things like uh, issues about um, interactions with other inmates, for example. Let's say you had one prisoner who was threatening to kill another prisoner. You might say, well, look, we can't keep these two people here. We have to move one of them to another institution. Uh, so that might be a reason, or there would be reasons like uh, program availabilities. There might be a more suitable program in one place uh, or another. Um, so there would be a variety of reasons, but the study pointed out there was a significant percentage uh, of these overrides uh, 
that uh, didn't seem to be well justified. Um, and uh, they were, uh, a number of things were given as reasons, because there have to be reasons for it. And some of them amounted to sort of disagreements with the uh, classification of security. And that's a concern. Um, one of the things that the study also points out, and they looked at the uh, rate of escapes, and they looked at the rate of escapes for individuals who were put in the type of institution that they were classified for and people who were overridden and moved, for example, into a uh, minimum security when they were classified as medium. Uh, and in the study, it concluded that there was a 13.6% increase in the escape rate when somebody's uh, classification was overridden to put them into a minimum security prison. Probably not a great surprise, but... The, uh, the result there is that more people are escaping when you override uh, the security classification that was arrived at by looking at their uh, background. Now, that brings us around to um, the uh, individuals here. Oh, and I should say this. One uh -huh. thing I should say that's a positive thing. Yes. At least in that study period, they looked at the rate of the completion rate, like the percentage of um, prisoners who successfully completed the program and were then released back into the community. The Pacific region at the time had the highest success rate, and that success rate was 95%. So generally it works, but there are a fair number of people for whom it doesn't work, and there's a significant increase for people who are put in institutions that uh, they weren't classified to be in. Now, that brings us around to the issue of the individual who had five previous escapes, was classified as medium security. What on earth is going on? Why would that person be reclassified to go to William Head? Indeed, why? Well, it looks like there were a couple of possible factors. One was that he was apparently um, accepted to go into a uh, treatment program that was available here, so there was some benefit to it. And then the other factor is that he was he had a 14-year sentence, and he was getting close to what's called his statutory release date. And a statutory release date is the date upon which you will presumptively be released unless there's a conclusion that you're going to pose an undue risk if you're let out. So he was close to that statutory release date. So I suppose one analysis would be, look, um, why are you going to escape when if you just do nothing... Um, you are going to be released in a very short period of time. So logic might dictate that somebody who's uh, going to be released soon would have very little incentive to leave when the result of that's going to be, well, you may have your statutory release date extended, you may wind up in a higher security prison, why in the world would you do that? Uh, but I suppose not every decision in life is made of a function of logic, and uh, not everyone who's in prison is necessarily sitting down and doing a careful risk-benefit analysis of all of their behavior. After all, if they were, they probably wouldn't be in prison to begin with. Why would I commit a crime, Your Honor, knowing that if I got caught, I would go to jail? This case doesn't hold water at all. That's I, right. Makes I would no not sense. This makes no <laughs> rational sense. All right. So uh, that may explain it, but... I, and so the case was put over because the judge wanted some explanation for what's going on. Good. Hopefully he has a look at, or this is provided, this study. And I think there are some legitimate questions to be asked about, okay, you commissioned this study in 2001. It pointed out this these issues. Uh, well, what's happened since then? Um, so I think there would be legitimate questions to be asked of corrections in terms of what do they do with this study? Has there been a decrease in those overrides? And has there been... Um, a change in the rationale for them, knowing that when you do that, you have a um, significantly higher probability of the person escaping. Not a good thing. 
So there we are. When is uh, the person in question appearing in court again? Is yeah, I think it was put over right? about two weeks. Okay. Now, so interestingly, similar. a judge doesn't actually have authority to require corrections to come and account for themselves. Okay. Um, a judge can ask for that. Uh, and the uh, Crown might, uh, you would expect them to go and make that inquiry of corrections. Hey, the judge wants to know how this person wound up there. What happened? Uh, but there's no authority to force Corrections Canada to come and explain themselves. The, the sentencing uh, process isn't uh, a generalized inquiry. Um, but uh, you would hope that there would be at least some explanation provided and those decisions are documented and reasons are given for them. Those are what were looked at in the study in 2001. Corrections is very, very good at producing copious written records, reports, and so forth. So there will be a report which would indicate why this person classified as medium security was put in the minimum security institution. That's going to be in writing. The reasons are going to be articulated there. So that exists. So the question is going to be, is that uh, provided to the judge um, so that he can make some determination as to what the background of this thing is uh, in the context of somebody with uh, five previous escapes. Let's take a quick break. Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues in just a moment. Second-half TDs help the Lions to a big home win. Hand off, White left side, five, buries his head, touchdown, BC Lions! Next up, the Argos, as they look to make it four straight. Cloverdale Bay, BC Lions football. Lions, Argos, Saturday, kickoff at 7. Brought to you by Dumont Tirecraft in Souk. This is CFAX 1070. What'll make your winter better? A sale on snowblowers or a sale on beach vacations? This winter, vacation better with Sunwing. Popular resorts sell out fast, so don't miss out on saving up to 35% on top-rated resorts during our Beach for Every Budget sale. And remember, at Sunwing, vacation better is more than a slogan. It's a promise. And so is our best price guarantee. Book today with your travel agent or... For a limited time, every $200 you purchase in Smile gift cards at Thrifty Foods will get you 200 Air Miles bonus miles. That works out to over $20 in free groceries. So smile and save cheese or fresh bread and get 200 bonus miles for every $200 in Smile cards you buy right now at Thrifty Foods. Hurry in. This is a limited time offer. See in store or this week's flyer for complete details. Thrifty Foods. Eat happy. Missing some fall wardrobe essentials? Marks has opened a brand new concept store in Hillside Mall with a new selection of jeans, boots, shoes, flannel, jackets, and more. Hurry into Marks Hillside today for all your favorite brands like Levi's, Silver, Carhartt, Helly Hansen, Timberland, and more. We want to welcome all of Victoria to celebrate the launch of our new concept store at Hillside Mall. Open now. Marks, here's to the well-worn. Fountain Tire wants to help you get ready for those chilly fall days. Ah, the crisp rain, leaves peppered across slick pavement, cold air, the morning frost, the sun coming up later, setting earlier. It's hard to see. It's wet and cold and dark. It's fall. It's awful. It's fallful. Chilly fall days. We know them well. Right now, save up to 25% on select Goodyear tires. Our best deal of the season. Offer ends October 26th. Visit FountainTire.com for details. Fountain Tire. We're on this road together. 
This is an important message from BC Children's Hospital Dream Lottery. Tickets are selling at a record-setting pace. We may sell out by early bird, so now is the time to buy. Make sure you're in to win our huge early bird prize and one of eight amazing grand prize options. At this unprecedented pace, tickets will not last. Act now while you still can. Call 604-692-2333 or visit bcchildren.com. Nineteen plus to play. Know your limit. Play within it. At Visions Optical, buy one pair and get one pair completely free from our two-for-one selection. You simply pay for the pair with the highest value. No extra charges on the second free pair, including treatments. You'll see it's a real treat without hidden costs at your Visions Optical locations in Victoria. With the sunshine season in full swing, there's never been an easier way to brighten or dim your rooms than with motorized shades from Budget Blinds. Right now, all enlightened style motorized shades are buy one, get one free. Budget Blinds Victoria. Style and service for every budget. Fuel your mind on the drive home. Weekday afternoons with Mark Brenay from 3 to 6. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. Keeping you informed, Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Story two, an individual by the name of Pashta Merrymoon. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. A self-described death midwife, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, will be able to keep calling herself that. Michael, what the heck's going on here? This is great. It's a, uh, I must say, if one is describing oneself as a death midwife, no better na- last name might you have than Merrymoon. Um, so this case involved Miss Mary Moon, uh, who was describing herself online and on Twitter as a death midwife. Um, and she described herself as somebody who provides death care services and had done so for more than 40 years. Uh, she had a degree in world religions, and um, she focused on, in, in that study, a modern approach to death and the taboos around it. So apparently she'd work with people uh, during a period of time when they are dying. Well, calling yourself a death midwife got the attention of the College of Midwives in British Columbia. As one might imagine. They, they didn't care for this. The College of Midwives uh, brought on this application uh, under the Health Profession, uh, Professions Act uh, that uh, deals with the reservation of use of titles. And, and there's this that act, the Health Professions Act, sets out a variety of things which are um, reserved titles. They include things like dentist or pharmacist. One can't just hang up a shingle claiming I'm a dentist when you are not indeed a dentist. Um, And midwife is one of the things which is a reserved title. I should note as well, so is lawyer. Absolutely, (laughs) as it should be, as it should (laughs) be. be. And the idea there, of course, is with all these things, trying to protect the public. You don't want just anyone putting up a sign saying, I am a dentist, and then just flying at it with their garden tools or whatever they think might be a successful approach to fixing your teeth. So this application comes on, and Miss Mary Moon uh, raises a constitutional argument. And she says, hey, hold on. Uh, first of all, I'm not pretending to do anything to do with the delivering of babies. Uh, and uh, so your effort under this legislation to stop me from calling myself a death midwife is interfering with my constitutionally protected freedom of expression. Uh, the Attorney General sends counsel to show up and defend the act, saying, oh, no, 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 this is fine. So Miss Mary Moon, first of all, argues I'm not violating the act. Uh, the judge doesn't have much trouble in dismissing that, saying, no, you're calling yourself, you're using the term midwife, putting death before it doesn't get you out of it. You can't just call yourself a death dentist or a death lawyer or something. 
and therefore avoid all <laughs> regulatory lawyer. restrictions. So, you know, death lawyer doesn't make you an on lawyer. All right. So uh, the judge said, no, no, the, the act is clear. You're violating it. And then went on to perform a very careful analysis of the uh, freedom of expression uh, argument. Uh, and found that the Supreme Court of Canada has broadly interpreted the concept of freedom of expression, um, and then the uh, found that this, using this terminology, was a form of expression, uh, and then did an analysis under a well-known legal test, at least for those of us in the in that world, called the Oaks test. Yes, and the Oaks test deals with. Um, how you're to engage in a Section 1 analysis where you found that somebody's constitutional rights have been infringed. And constitutional rights aren't absolute in Canada. Uh, they are subject to um, the Section 1 uh, sort of limitation on them, right? And when a judge is determining whether there's a, uh, a reasonable limit on somebody's constitutional rights, in this case to expression, the test to be applied comes from that case, Oaks, and hence the Oaks test. And a judge is required to look at things like, first of all, is there a pressing and substantial importance to the to the law? Yeah, you don't want people calling themselves a dentist or a midwife who aren't those things. Sure, no problem there. Then you need to look at, is there a rational or logical means of achieving that objective? Is what they're doing the restriction? Yes, that's fine. Now the next part of the test uh, was the was there a minimal impairment of the right? And that's that's um, yeah. I think very important here. The concept of minimal impairment and the balancing of the rights of the individual uh, uh, that are enshrined in the charter. Talk more about that. Right, and here's where Miss Mary Moon succeeded. Uh, and the idea there is that even if you've got an important reason why you're going to uh, breach somebody's charter protected right to expression. And even if what you're doing is logical or rational, like saying, hey, you just can't hang up a sign saying, I am a dentist when you're not a dentist, that's rational to say you can't do that. The legislation has to be found to be a minimal impairment of the constitutionally protected right. And the judge found that this was not, uh, that this person, uh, Miss Mary Moon, using the term death midwife, uh, the fact that that was prohibited by this legislation didn't uh, meet that requirement of a minimal impairment of her right to freedom of expression. Uh, and as a result, um, even though uh, on the face of it, uh, calling yourself a death midwife is calling yourself a midwife, uh, on the facts of this case and how this person was using this terminology, and she did say, in fairness, she did say on her website, I am not a part of the College of uh, midwives uh, made it clear that uh, she was not trying to deliver babies, uh, that uh, that was constitutionally protected. The legislation was overly broad, not a minimal impairment, therefore a breach. Section 1 didn't apply, uh, and so you are now free to hire uh, Miss Mary Moon, who uh, is a death midwife, and she's free to carry on calling herself that. Um, how that applies to other protected language is going to be an interesting uh, thing, uh, to see, uh, because you can well imagine uh, various other permutations. I doubt there are going to be a lot of death pharmacists out there, but you could well imagine somebody using some of those terms. And the concern is, of course, we don't want to cause harm to the public. You don't want to have somebody thinking, oh, wow, that person seems like, I don't know, some kind of a pharmacist. They're calling themselves a herbal pharmacist or a natural pharmacist or a, you know, uh, pain-free dentist-like person. Um, you don't want to have uh, confusion cause that's going to cause harm to people. So 
there it is. Uh, the death uh, midwife is free to carry on. Now, here's what I'm curious about, and this may well be settled in perhaps uh, future legal proceedings, is, is the term death midwife unique enough for her to claim intellectual property rights to it? And in that case, could any other person also use the term without necessarily infringing on her rights to any intellectual property unique works that she might have? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, you know, Miss Mary Moon did get costs on this application. She was successful, so perhaps some of those will be invested in uh, future litigation concerning uh, <laughs> her exclusive use of the uh, term. Although I must say there'd be a little bit of irony uh, given her argument about freedom of expression uh, if her immediate move is to restrict other people from expressing themselves in exactly the same way. But, you know, there we are. That's not unheard of. <laughs> well, trust me, as a person who makes expressions for a living, I very jealously guard my freedom to do so, as well as the right that any person who creates any work has over the control of their intellectual works. But I, I digress. <laughs> We've got, oh, two minutes left. Do we want to do another one? Sure. Or? I think okay. I could probably sum this okay. up in two minutes. There have been a few cases in the news recently about um, findings of people being not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. There was recently a Salt Spring case for a person who uh, killed their mother. Uh, and there have been other reports, including uh, about a release of a person in Alberta after having served a number of years, or not served, but been for a number of years in a uh, hospital, having been classified in that way. So I thought it would be worth just saying a few things about what it means and when somebody might be found to be not criminally responsible. The, the language in the criminal code is this. Um, and first of all, there's a presumption that you are criminally responsible, and the circumstances in which you can found to be not be are that uh, if you are uh, somebody who is suffering from a mental disorder that renders a person incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of the acts or omissions or knowing that it was wrong, which is a fairly high threshold. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody is found to be in that state, right, they couldn't appreciate uh, knowing right from wrong or the quality of their actions, it doesn't mean that you get a free pass. What it means is that you would be then subject indefinitely to the decisions of the review board who would determine whether you remain in jail or are going to be released or released on some conditions sort of conditionally. Yes. And the effect of that can be in some circumstances a person being in involuntarily in a uh, hospital for many years, much longer than they might have served for the original yeah. act had they not been. But on the other case, in the other case, if somebody is successfully treated, they may well wind up being released more quickly than they would otherwise have been uh, if they were sent if they were not not criminally responsible and the concept essentially is when we 're looking at all the reports of these things that it doesn 't make any rational sense to be punishing and trying to deter people who acted in some way as a result of a mental illness that 's just not an effective tactic. Um, nor are you going to deter other people from becoming mentally ill and doing things well in that state. Indeed. And so the watchword is always uh, where there is a determination that that's what happened uh, to ensure that somebody's treated and to ensure that the public is safe rather than uh, the other considerations that deal with punishment and deterrence, which we would apply in ordinary circumstances. Indeed. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Thanks so much. We'll do this again 11 o'clock next week. We have another debate. We'll see you then. Thank you.